Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pages Unknown, the podcast dedicated to all things books and pop culture. My name is Zachariah, and I will be joined, as always, by my fabulous co-host, Michaela. Say hi, Michaela. Hi, Michaela. On this episode, we have a very special guest. You know her as the ace of books on TikTok. We have Emma joining us. Say hi, Emma. Hi, Emma. On this episode, we're going to be talking about Babel by R.F. Kuang. We're excited to talk to Emma. She's cultivated a really lovely community of readers on TikTok, and we're very excited to talk to her about RF Kuang's Babel. So before we get into what was probably the best book we have all read this year, Emma, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and just like your experience with book talk? <laughs> yes. So I kind of became a book talker by accident. It was the pandemic, and I just wanted to not have to tell my family about books all the time because I was driving them <laughs> up the walls. So I decided to shout into the void instead, and people seemed to like it, but I do have a story about this. Ooh, okay. Where now the weird thing is that occasionally people have started to recognize me, which surprises me. And so I was at my undergraduate institution one day when a very nice older woman walked up to me and she said, Oh, excuse me, I follow you on TikTok. And I said, Oh, that's very nice. And then <laughs> I found out that she was the director of the entire music program oh my at <laughs> my institution. Did she bring up any particular book or thing that had caught her attention to you? Or She said, she was like, I, I'm reading Graceling. I'm loving Graceling. Because I had recently like posted mm. a video saying you should read Graceling. And I guess she decided <laughs> to read it. That is so funny. You bring, Graceling is like one of my favorite books ever. I read it 8,000 times. Graceling and what is it? Fire, I think is sort of semi-companion, mm. I guess, a little bit. Oh my God, those books are incredible. Absolutely read those books. <laughs> so good. That is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> the director of the entire music yeah. program. And the funny thing is my sister is in that program. So I don't oh. know. If, yeah, but I don't think she realizes we're related. <laughs> so were you like, guess what? Guess who I talked to? And your sister was like, um... <laughs> Yep. <laughs> that is so cool. That begs the question, I suppose, is your sister going around saying, I'll have you know, my sister is a famous book talker. <laughs> I, apparently she uses that in Icebreakers when she has to have an interesting fact about oh, herself. <laughs> that's her interesting fact about herself. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> I am by happenstance the sister of... <laughs> Uh, the very same, the Ace of Books, can you believe? <laughs> the very <Shocker>. same. <laughs> okay, so before we get into the real discussion portion of this episode, allow me very quickly to give you a brief synopsis of exactly what Babel is all about. I'm not going to get super detailed because I do want you to read the book. <laughs> Everyone should read this book, but I will give you a brief one just so you're not lost listening to this episode. So the year is 1828. We're following our character, Robin Swift, who's been orphaned, uh, cholera. Unfortunately, it took entire family living in Canton in China. He's brought to London by the mysterious Professor Lavelle. I'm not sure if that's how everyone's pronouncing it in their heads, but that's what I was doing. He comes to London and he trains for years in multiple languages. We've got Latin, we've got ancient Greek, we've got Chinese. There's so many more that are mentioned, I can't even go through them. And it's all in preparation for the day that he's going to be enrolled in Oxford University's prestigious Royal Institute of Translation, also known as 
people. Along the way, he meets a whole host of characters who become more than friends. They're more like his family. And they're all learning at this one tower, the Tower of Babel. Don't know if you've heard of it. <laughs> Might sound familiar. <laughs> now, this is the World Center for Translation. And more importantly, it's the World Center for Magic. Silverworking the art of manifesting the meeting lost in translation using enchanted silver bars. It's made the British Empire absolutely unparalleled in its power, and its knowledge serves the Empire's quest for colonization. And of course, our characters, not being from Britain, struggle with this. There are tones of imperialism and colonialism. There's the questions of who should you be loyal to, the new world you live in, or the place that you come from. Zachariah, I would love to hear what you thought of this magic system. You're sort of a connoisseur of magic systems, being someone who loves them very much. So I'd love to hear what you thought, because this silver working, it's very cool. It's very unique. I have to say, I wish there was more of it displayed throughout the book. I would have loved to have seen more of it. However, it is so unique and so lovely just to hear how the author talks about translation. There's power in it, right? Political power that we're talking, but there's real actual magic that the thing that is lost between these two languages that they are comparing the lost meaning some things you just can't translate and in that weird space of unknowing you get this fantastical silver working power i loved it as you said i am a connoisseur of magic systems i love lore and i love sitting down and thinking about what it looks like if one person does this or if something does that what are the implications the world runs on this it's not just a magic system it is the thing that's the glue that is holding this entire facade up. So as you read this book, you're going to wonder when the magic kicks in. The magic is baked into it. You just have to be aware. You have to be ready to engage with the fact that it is a very unique magic system. So obviously spending so much time on book talk, as you do, do you have any thoughts or feelings about how Babel was received on book talk? Because what I was seeing was pretty varied. People had hard opinions mm -hmm. one way or the other, which is kind of not usual for book talk. I feel like everybody kind of goes on the same vein. Did you notice anything? Like, what did you observe? That's really interesting. I think mm -hmm. most of the people I saw were very, very enthusiastic about it. But there was also, I think, definitely this sense of, ooh, this book is so difficult and complicated and mm -hmm. look at this book and we're going to dig into it. So it, it was definitely, I think, positive for me across the board, which is interesting mm -hmm. yeah. for sure. I was seeing mostly positive, but there definitely were some people mm -hmm. who were coming in being like, this book is too much. Kind of, I think because yeah. so much of book talk is dominated by fluffy romance and Sarah J. Moss books. Yes. That's what book talk is. <laughs> so a lot of those people <laughs> were kind of saying no to Babel, which was interesting to me because it's such an amazing book. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think that TikTok as well as Instagram and Twitter are both kind of divided on how they felt about Babel before and after they read it. On TikTok specifically, I think there is this tendency to not negatively review a book, but instead to have some deference and say, hey, I don't know that it's my cup of tea. However, I'm sure both of you probably saw there was a gentleman on TikTok who was absolutely saying, I'm not going to read this. I will not yes. read this yes. book. You remember? Do you remember this guy? And I realized a long while ago that I had watched a couple of folks on that side of TikTok stitch his videos and really try to call him out. But they were also trying to rein him in and saying, it's okay. People trust your opinion. You as this straight white dude are acting 
actively saying this book written by an Asian woman is not worth your time. You're doing a disservice to not only yourself, but to other folks. So I think that the discourse on TikTok was really, I don't want to use the word intense, but I think it was very intentional about how people approach this author as well as the author of Iron Widow. Uh, I think they were both getting maybe similar treatment. It's kind of interesting that you say that because I feel as though that's almost what it's almost like a microcosm of what Babel discusses, right? Like (laughs) kind of blends perfectly (laughs) into the whole plot of of Babel is just or Babel or Babel. I'm sure people will tell us. Which way is right? I'll get some angry DMs about that. But um, I, it kind of blend, blends perfectly, right? These very divisive thoughts, because that's kind of what it was for the characters too, where they had to pick one road or the other, both sets of extremes, either I'm for my own homeland or I'm moving on with England. So that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm very happy that we're talking with you, Emma, about this book in particular because of your educational background. So would you mind just yes. summarizing quickly what your program is all about, what you're doing right now? Yes. So I am currently in a graduate program in classics, particularly in Latin pedagogy is kind of my <laughs> my emphasis. But then before that, I, I got a BA in linguistics. And so the linguistics and classics combo is kind of like, Sheesh. I felt like this was exactly what Babel was wow. about. Totally. It worked mm-hmm. out perfectly, honestly. I was so happy when Zachariah brought up the idea of talking with you about this, particularly because I have a BA in classics. So I was so excited to be able to, I always get excited when I get to talk to people who care about classics. <laughs> I feel like it's very exciting. <laughs> yes. And this book is just, it's the, the perfect blending of this world. It's definitely right up your alley. I feel like it was great. I do quickly want to say, I've watched a lot of your content. I've consumed a lot of your content recently, getting paired to speak with you. Yes. <laughs> How in the world are you able to read as much as you do? Because I think you said what, like roughly 200-ish books a year, you know, guesstimate. Yeah. Also yeah. go to school for something that is a very difficult discipline and requires a lot of reading, a lot of writing. Translating stuff takes a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're able <laughs> to do that. It does. And to cap it all off, you're able to regularly post on TikTok, which Zachariah and I are trying to maintain a presence on TikTok under our pages <laughs> unknown, not to plug it, but you know, check us out. How It's so hard. I don't know how you do it all. Like, there's only 24 hours in the day, Emma. How are you doing this? It's so hard. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think regular posting on TikTok uh, hasn't been regular lately. Mm, <laughs> it depends. Fair enough. <laughs> Maybe, but yeah, I, I do count the books that I read for school in that number. Like recently okay. we read in one of my classes, like Procaleo, Cicero. And so I'm like, I'm going to add that to my Goodreads number because you I did read it. So you absolutely yeah, that's should. That's totally fair. Yeah. You, you read that book. You might as well add it to the count. And if people say that that's cheating, I disagree. You read the book. <laughs> yeah. That's not right? cheating. Like, I never said I read this many books for fun. Oh, like, yeah, sometimes it's not fun. <laughs> Yeah, the Procaleo isn't exactly a titillating read. I, feel like I think I did no. that in one of my Latin courses. I don't remember which one, but <laughs> yeah. For the non-classicist, for the non-classicist in on right. the call right now, can you tell me what the text that you are talking about actually is? Do you want to take this one, Michaela? No, I'm giving it, I'm giving it all to you, Emma. I haven't read the Alrighty. Procaleo in years. <laughs> It's essentially a legal speech that Cicero gave to defend a man named Marcus Caelius, who had thrown his lot in with a sort of a conspirator named Catiline. And so the speech is Cicero trying to say, hey, maybe we should not convict this this guy, Marcus Caelius. It's it's his legal defense, essentially. It's not exactly a okay. uh, easy read. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, it's not not not, not easy to translate either. No, that one's a tough one. There's so many different meanings. If I'm, th- if I'm remembering correctly, I think I have my copy over there. <laughs> It sounds like there's some parallels between this exact thing you're talking about, throwing your lot in with some kind of conspirators and the book itself. So it's very funny that that's (laughs) the thing that's being read currently for your program. Mm -hmm. Oh, that actually is perfect. for sure. What a perfect transition that is. Oh my gosh. Who knew we were going to connect Cicero back to Babel today? (laughs) What a dream. (laughs) That can take us right to the book itself. I want to know both of your immediate reactions, especially with the background that you just told us that you both have being academics. I'm calling you both that, but you are. (laughs) Michaela is a literal, actual librarian on top of this. I want to know what your reactions were while you were reading it. And if you had any expectations as to what the book was going to be or do for you, I would love to hear from you first, Emma and Michaela. Okay. I was kind of surprised because I had heard a lot that this is a very complicated book. It's very intense and it was very Mm -hmm. intense, but I was actually kind of surprised with how easy it was to get into at the beginning. I felt like the author did a very good job at kind of easing us into the world. And so that was a very pleasant surprise for me. Although this might have also been affected by the fact that the book I was reading before this was The Locked Tomb Trilogy by Tamsin Muir, which just kind of, I think, tries to make it as complicated as possible. So this was very refreshing. I agree. I totally agree. I was surprised. So actually, the preconnotation that I had going into it was that it was a slow build. People had kind of said the beginning, it's very, very slow. And then the last 200 odd pages, it really picks up and you're going at breakneck speed. Mm -hmm. Normally, those kind of books take a minute for me to get into. I struggle a little bit because I'm impatient. But this one, I didn't feel that way at all. I loved the characters off the bat. I was ready to go. And it didn't stop keeping my attention all 500 some odd pages, whatever it is. I was engaged with the text the whole time. I completely agree. I'm actually surprised after reading it that this wasn't two books. And I know I know the reason I'm saying this is because I think the first part of it was actually like, as you're saying, a very intentionally slow, right? Kind of introduction to the world, kind of the background, giving us all of these relationships, building that out, and then teasing us with this background happening with this Hermes society. I'm not, I'm not spoiling anything, saying the name of it. It just happens to be in the book. But I actually thought at some point after reading it, I think I thought, why wasn't this two books? Because I think the author could have taken us through that long bit and then left us on some kind of cliffhanger with the society. And then the second book could have been a little longer, spread out that as you just said, Michaela, that breakneck last portion. That's a really interesting point. I think that some people were saying, I saw a couple complaints that last 200 pages wrapped up so quickly that they felt like they were pacing themselves with the book and then it just ended and it felt a little abrupt. We're not Mm going to say what the ending is, but it it wraps up in an interesting way. (laughs) (laughs) And so I don't know. I think that this book was so unique to me in that it didn't feel like it was driven forward by the characters or by the plot, but more so by the the themes and the motifs of what the whole book mm-hmm. was supposed to be about. It was almost as if I wasn't supposed to focus on the relationships between the characters, but more so on the larger than life anthropomorphized being that was the tower, you know, this representation of colonialism and imperialism. I found it very interesting. I guess I want to ask you, Emma, is this book something that you would have picked up 
by yourself or would it have depended on getting a recommendation from somebody? Because I know that you love heist books. And so this does include some heists that are happening inside of the book. That's not really talked about as like the as the focal. Yeah. So I think I would have picked this up on my own because I do love anything in the heist zone. That is that's my jam. But I also I love books about language and about imperial languages. Like my favorite science fiction book is A Memory Called Empire, which is very strangely similar. It kind of deals with very similar topics, even though it's set in space. So this book <laughs> definitely felt like something I would have read on my own. I mean, I think I would not have picked this book up myself. I think it would have required some type of recommendation. And the reason I think that is because magic is not maybe at the at the center of the real book itself. I'm somebody, I've said this before in a podcast, I would love to one day wake up and be able to shoot laser beams out of my <laughs> nostrils. You know what I mean? Like I want to be, I want the whole story to be like, how do I control my new breathing mechanism? <laughs> but, so I don't know that I would have... <laughs> I don't know that I would have picked this up. Michaela, would this have been something that you would have picked up? One million percent. One bajillion percent. I think that the right way to phrase this. So when I visited some of my partner's family in England, I went to Waterstones. They're sort of Barnes and Noble. And there was a table and the little flyer on top of the table said, devastating masterpieces. And it was all of these books. Like A Little Life is the first one that comes to mind that I think a lot of people would be familiar with that sort of falls into that mm-hmm. genre, if you can call it that. I love those kind of books. <laughs> I like the emotional turmoil. And I think it would have been attractive to me, this book, Babel, because I would have known that it is dealing with heavy themes. I mm-hmm. not Don't get me wrong. I love fluffy. I love fantastical. I love romance. I'm definitely a romance girly. But this type of story is so much more important. It feels a lot bigger. It feels like it's going to stick with you. So yeah, 100%. I would have seen it on the shelf and been like, you're coming home with me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, plus too, it's all academic. It reminds me, do you know the book A Secret History by Donna Tartt? Is anybody familiar with that? Yes. It was kind of similar, like a group of academic friends. There's murder and mystery involved. I haven't read A Secret History in a minute, so I don't remember the exact plot. I think it's also classics. I'm so predictable. But that <laughs> this gave me the same vibe as that, this sort of little blurb on the inside dust jacket. So I definitely would have been all over this book. Emma, I do have a quick question that we don't have to include this in the podcast, but because you love heist stuff, did you watch the Disney movie Catch That Kid? No, I have not heard of wow. this. It's a heist movie from like the early 2000s. It it's about a group of kids. And if I'm remembering remembering correctly, they're supposed to break into this like, oh God, what is it? They're stealing something out of like a performing arts center or something like that. That's amazing. It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I remember watching that when I was like 12 and I was blown away. I'm sorry to take that turn from the podcast. I don't mean to ruin anyone's flow, but I just needed to know. (laughs) That's, I don't know how I've not heard of this. I think it's called Catch That Kid or Catch Your Kid or something like that. Actually, I think I can look at it. I will look it up. Catch That Kid. I think Brief it came interlude. out in the early 2000s. Yeah, I'm sorry. It came out in 2004. No, don't worry at all. We are actively recommending a lot of books and now we're also diving into movies right now. Just... <laughs> Here it is. I found it. And guess who is the star? That's right. None other than Kristen Stewart herself. What? Mm-hmm. No. Wait, yes, what's this movie says, again? That's amazing. It says athletic 12 year old Maddie shares an enthusiasm for mountain climbing with her father, Tom. Unfortunately, Tom suffers a spinal injury while scaling Mount Everest and his family is unable to afford the surgery that can save him. Maddie decides to get the money for her father's operation by robbing a high security bank. She relies on her climbing skills <laughs> and help from her geeky friends to pull it off successfully. <laughs> it's incredible. It's called 
called Catch That Kid 2004. I recommend it. I need to watch this. It's a great one. I don't know if how you're going to be able to find it. Is it based on a book? That's what I want to know because then I feel like we can actively Ooh. recommend it to Emma. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> That I don't know. It just immediately popped into my head. You said the word heist and I was like, wait a minute. I think Corbin Blue is in it too. That's a weird world kind of colliding thing. Also, Chris, uh, yeah. this is totally yeah. not related to anything to Babel, but Kristen Stewart is quite an underrated actress and I'm getting so mad at the world for not understanding this. It is a book. I love her. Oh my God, it's a book. Catch That Kid by Suzanne Wayne. Wayne? W-E-Y-N. How have I not heard of this? This is unreal. Is we are going to talk about your to be read shelf, Emma. So maybe this is just another thing we can add. Oh, yes. wait, is this a, it might be a novelization of the movie. Oh. Mm. I have opinions about Difficult those, but to I, tell. I will keep them to myself. It came out at the same time. So I'm, oh yeah. And it's from, <laughs> oh, it's from Scholastic. It's like those Scholastic kid novels, a novelization oh. of the hit film from 20th Century Aww. Fox. I don't know if you'll be able to find it. This is a deep cut. I'm so sorry again to interrupt our flow here, but I had to know. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> the people who listen to our podcast are actively aware that we do many, many asides, <laughs> diatribes, tangents. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, only the cool people stay with us through those things. So. <laughs> I think the next thing that I kind of want to talk about, since both of you are academics, this book is a strong critique of academic institutions as they currently exist. I want both of you to talk about your backgrounds and how you felt while reading this book and what stuck out, maybe some of the parallels, your experience. Did you feel the same kind of pressures that these individuals felt? Uh, Emma, I'd love to start with you. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think I definitely have been very, very lucky and very privileged in that I have never been made to feel like I don't belong in academia, which is a very rare mm -hmm. kind of experience, I think, to have. And so, yeah. you know, it's really important, I think this book is, to show all of the ways that academia is so incredibly elitist, especially in classics, mm -hmm. so much so. This might be a good place to talk about, I have a grammatica. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, wait, is this yes. like a good place to put that in? Perfect. There? Okay, perfect. I also, like a lot of my research in undergrad was about these kinds of grammaticas and the ways that they were often used as a tool of colonialism. Um, and so I have one. It's a 1950 printing of a grammar of a language called Tanaha that is indigenous to Idaho. Oh, wow. This grammatica was written by a Jesuit priest who was a missionary who had come and tried to basically stick this language, this indigenous language of North America into Latin categories. And so he was very much using translation and this act of trying to write out the grammar as a tool of colonialism in a lot of ways. I've always thought this kind of a microcosm of this Jesuit priest coming mm -hmm. in and trying to impose his way of life on these people who did not ask for it. And so to see that represented in this mm -hmm. book so clearly was just kind of mind-blowing. I've seen this in the real world. Wow. That is amazing. You're going to have to do some videos about this very particular thing, Emma. You're going to have to because I, I need <laughs> yes. to know personally. I mean, we didn't prepare for any of us getting into this Jesuit priest situation here, but <laughs> you're going to have to make some. <laughs> I, yes. oh my God, I feel like I need to have a whole other podcast dedicated to what, that's amazing. That is so cool it's that amazing. you have that. <laughs> it's been wild. I 
was reading this book, I was oh, whoa. (laughs) Jeez Louise, that is so cool. Michaela, do you have any kind of opinions about your academic background versus what was going on in... Yeah, to be totally clear, I have my BA in classical studies, and I'm currently enrolled in a library sciences program, graduate program, in order to become a fully-fledged librarian where they give you the pin and everything that tells people that you read books. (laughs) (laughs) So it's very different. You know, the work that I was doing when I was doing EA was a lot more intensive. The work I'm doing now is a lot more discussion based than it is Mm. obviously translation based. There's zero translations. Mm -hmm. Something that I do remember about my time, the classics department at the school Zachariah and I attended was very small. Mm -hmm. I think there were about six of us total. (laughs) It was teeny tiny. I did feel like I was, like you said, Emma, I felt like I was very lucky. Everyone was very nice and just excited to kind of be talking about the thing we were all passionate about. So there wasn't too much of the elitism. There was like, I interacted with people who would only speak in Latin. And that to me was always the red flag of like, ugh, okay. (laughs) I decided on this major because I really liked Percy Jackson. (laughs) You know, like it had nothing to do with uh, this big brain theory about (laughs) me wanting to speak in tongues to people. So I think that was sort Mm -hmm. of the biggest hurdle I had. I'm interested to hear what you guys thought of this because something that struck me, obviously the author Mm -hmm. is a female identifying person who wrote her main character as, as male as he's coming into this academic space as a male. That's really interesting to me. I'm very curious about that choice. Obviously, there are female characters, to be clear. Mm -hmm. There are people in in the book that identify as female. But I don't know. I found it interesting that the protagonist, the person who pushes her themes and her stories is male. I wonder what guided that approach. That's a good thought. I did not think about that in the moment, but Mm -hmm. that's a really interesting point. I wonder if, to some extent, it makes it less muddy for her to explore these themes because instead of having to deal with, okay, Tons of racism and Mm -hmm. also tons of sexism. She could kind of separate those things out a little bit more. Yeah. And I mean, I also found it interesting. The I don't want to say villain, not really a villain, not not Mm -hmm. to bring up Taylor Swift, maybe the (laughs) anti-hero. The anti-hero. But when we look at the character Letty, the character Letty, who makes some questionable choices, Letty is white. You know, she doesn't have the issues of overt racism that a lot of the other characters deal with as people who were taken from their homelands and brought to the institution. So it's interesting, not only is her protagonist male, but her sort of catalyst for a lot of the problems is white. <laughs> it's a person who's able to skate by. <laughs> no, uh, 100%. I think maybe the intentional choice of making the main character male actually in and of itself is an additional critique that we had necessary t- consideration mm. here, right? Obviously, mm. the author is female identified. So she said, I'm going to write this in a way that all of you are going to understand if I wrote in, just as you said, Emma, if I wrote in the additional sexism, I I think maybe she would say her point might get muddy. The entire thing might get muddier because there's almost so much that somebody would have to know. They can't pretend that they don't understand or know. However, I think this was a very, a very good intentional choice by the author. Yeah. Similar to never Mm -hmm. revealing his Chinese name, his his original name. Very intentional. Oh my gosh, makes me so mad. (laughs) I know, I know, but I wanted to know. I wanted to know so badly. (laughs) Absolutely. It is not for me. It is not for me. (laughs) It killed me. It killed me because it left us not, in some ways, not knowing this person. It made it so that there was always this barrier. We would only know him as everybody else knew him. The only person who knew was his mother and mate professor. Before we move on from this, I did want to comment about academic background. Obviously, it's different, much different 
different than yours. I was very jealous. I wanted to continue on in academia, but I just don't think it's in the cards for me. I know this is a critique of academic institutions. I constantly growing up felt just like this. I wanted to be accepted into these different rooms, into these different institutions. Where I grew up, you were lucky if you graduated high school. And so going to college felt like this insane kind of pyramid I was climbing, this insane hill. Reading this book, I'm like, I know how Robin feels in this moment. I desperately want to stay in a place that values me for my brain and doesn't look at me just as a another person who goes out, gets married and does whatever, right? Obviously, this book is about much more than doing all of those things actively. Romance is actively avoided in a majority of the book, actually. But I'm feeling a little tinge of jealousy to both of you. I would love to be in academic spaces. But instead, I think I've turned that energy and just am fine with reading also an insane amount of books per year. I mean, never say never, Zach. You never know what's coming around the corner. And also, I personally believe that being a part of academic spaces is more than anything, it's a state of mind. A person who's, yes. who wants to yeah. learn, who wants to continue to engage with material that might be difficult, it might be tricky to get through, it might take, you know, I have three steno pads full of notes from books that I've read of having to look up words and not really understanding a certain mm -hmm. sentence. I have to rewrite it in order for me to get it. It's just a state of mind. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a really great transition into a question that I've been sort of thinking about since reading this book, which is that tale as old as time connotation of book people are smart. If you read books, you are intelligent. Mm. This natural correlation people draw between reading comprehension and intelligence, which I think is a fallacy. I don't think that there is a Hi, yeah, I, for sure. You know, I can go over to my bookshelf and pull off a bunch of smutty romance novels that had offered nothing to my brain. It's not like they, but I read them all. <laughs> you no. Know? And then you have this book. I saw so many people saying that they weren't smart enough to read it. And it really bugged me. Mm. You must get that a lot, Emma. I feel like people probably say to you a lot, mm -hmm. you're so smart. You get it all. I could never do that. Does that bother you at all? Yeah, it does. It bothers me a mm -hmm. lot. It really does. And then also, I just, people a lot of times they'll say, oh, you must think you're so smart or you must be lying. And I'm, what What would be my motivation to lie about this? I don't know. And, I, and it, it's that same thing where it's like, it's not a correlation at all. Of all the books I read, are all of them like, academic and thought-provoking? Absolutely not. Like, <laughs> some of them are just dumb and fun, or some of them are just bad. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Wait, can you give us give us an example of one of the bad books? Okay. Am I putting you on the spot okay. now? No, Here no. We are. I, I will say... I thought that From Blood and Ash was, it needed some considerable editing on many, many levels. People can enjoy yep. it. That's totally fine with me. But on an artistic level, would not say it was well-crafted. What was that grammar? I, it was not, I don't know. Like, it was not grammar. <laughs> I didn't, it wasn't reading like English. <laughs> no. It was baffling. And it was so repetitive. I, well, yes. I wish I could remember exactly, but it was always, oh, you're so violent. Such a violent little creature. She's so violent. Violent and sexy all the time. Like, so weird. Uncomfy. No. That's a good example. I think, Emma, I think I've seen your review of this where you say this felt like a second to last draft of the book, I think is what you have said about this. Yeah. I think you said that too about some Sarah J. Moss books, which I yes, love. Those two. I love the way you phrase that as a second to last draft because that, mm -hmm. just to put it out there, I do enjoy the Court of Thorns and Roses books oh, yeah, and the Crescent City sure. books. I think they're really fun. 
Mm -hmm. I think it's very light and easy. It's not anything crazy. I do like the characters. I think Sarah J. Moss does a good job of making me care (laughs) about her main characters grammatically and technically all over the place. (laughs) I think we can all agree. Mm -hmm. And that is the perfect way to say it. just needed a couple more rounds of edits to really read like a book book, a capital B book, you know? Yeah. I'm glad you feel the same way though about the intelligence Mm -hmm. and book thing because I just don't understand it. As a library, like I've worked as a librarian the whole my whole life since I was like 16 where I was working in libraries and I've worked in bookstores and so often people will say that they'll be like oh I heard about this book on the New York Times bestseller list it's right over here and I'm too dumb to read that what no (laughs) what does that mean it's so silly yeah that's kind of one of the great things about the internet is that it makes reading a lot more accessible in a lot of ways because Mm -hmm. if I don't understand a book I can look up the Wikipedia summary I just had to do that with one of the locked tomb books I did not understand it had to figure out what was actually going on. And so I think that in a lot of ways, like the internet has made reading a lot more accessible, which I really like. Totally. Specifically, book talk, I think has really reinvigorated people's Mm -hmm. interest in being a hobby reader, if you could call it that, which I love. As a librarian and a book lover, it's amazing. Get all the books, read all the smutty vampire fanfics you want. I think it's fantastic. Graphic novels, audiobooks, I don't care. (laughs) Absolutely. All of us fund public libraries. I need everybody listening to patronize, not in a bad way, in a good way. Go check out a book at your local library. Even just signing up yes. for a card. I was going to say. Yeah. Do it. It gets them funding, right? Mm-hmm. The, the more folks that actually have these things, your taxes are allocated. Yes. Not to use my knowledge of tax infrastructure, but like y'all listen. <laughs> you pay for this. It's a resource. Go do it. If you, yes. have an, if you have a paper you're writing for school, there are people, librarians, who will help you. Hello, it's me. I will do <laughs> that for you. Right there. <laughs> I do want to say the other side of this when when people are saying, "Oh, you must they're so smart. You read so many books." Growing up, I got the opposite. I was just reading a lot, so people would actively be saying, "You must be so proud. Your son is so smart. He's just devouring those books." Meanwhile, I was actively reading books where people were, as I was saying, shooting laser beams out of their <laughs> face, whatever, right? But you constantly hear this other thing growing up. So there's a section of people who I think hear this and they become the thing we're critiquing. They become pompous and say, yeah, that's right. I read a lot of books per year. Oh, you watch Netflix? Interesting use of your time. Yes. Oh my God. That's just like the guy who spoke only in Latin. The guy. <laughs> yes. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Just like the guy. Stupid guy. Listen, that's also the big problem. A lot of men in this book are the problem. (laughs) Hot take. I mean, that's not a hot take if it's the truth, which I think is a great built-in transition to move on to talk about the big bad evil guys. Yes. Who is it? Who actually is the big bad evil thing in this book? Is it colonialism and empire? Is it academia run amok, absorbed in its own hubris and thirst for power? Is it England? (laughs) It's England. Spoiler alert, uh, it's England. who was the real evil force here? What was the main driver of the bad? I think I would say that I think the text itself, the characters in the text, they believe, I think, that it is imperialism and that it is empire. Mm -hmm. And especially because we get this, I don't think this is a spoiler, we get this contrast drawn between Babel, the tower, and then between the Hermes Society, where at one point Robin thinks to himself, like, this is what Babel could have been. This reminds me of my early Babel days. And so it 
kind of felt like this line was being mm-hmm. drawn of this is what it could have been without this specter of imperialism devouring everything. Yeah, I totally agree. Something so interesting to me about this book, and you know, forgive me if I'm repeating myself here, but the characters are not pushing forward the plot. They don't do it. They're a vehicle for which the author uses mm-hmm. colonialism, racism, elitism. That's the plot. That's the focus. That's mm-hmm. the question yes. that you're still left wondering about because there's no answer. And again, we're not going to say the ending, but it's it doesn't wrap up in a neat little <laughs> bow. You know, we don't get mm-hmm. this moment, our Mighty Ducks moment of triumph because the enemy that they're facing right. is so much larger than life. It reminds me a little bit and, you know, I won't get too off into this tangent, but in the US, our <laughs> war on terror and war on drugs, these sort of very fluid mm-hmm. terms that aren't specified for very specific reasons, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that's more so who the villain was to me. It wasn't any person or, I mean, it's always England, but even not England, it's these ideals of colonialism mm-hmm. and this sort of mm-hmm. desire for people to exert their will over other groups that they see as being less than and disrupting these, I mean, like you said, Emma, this sort of person coming in <laughs> and taking something that's not theirs and making it just a reflection of their own culture. So I think that's the big bad. What do you think, Zach? It's just a giant loop, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, colonialism is an empire are upheld by this institution in this book, upheld by Babel and all the babblers. The thirst for power obviously is from any country who thinks that they can take advantage of another country and its resources including its people and land, but it's just a giant circle. It feeds into each other when you have these institutions. And, that, and I'm just talking about institutions as like Babel. I mean, systemic racism, it's baked into the things we have, right? Classism built into it, homophobia built into it. Not saying there's homophobia is really, it's not really touched on in the book, but all of these different institutions that exist uphold these systems of oppression, colonialism and empire. Yeah. I think For sure. I feel like too. One of the criticisms I saw was pe- people were saying that the characters were a little flat, where they felt like they were a bit one-dimensional. But again, that's I feel like that's purposeful because they're not the focus. It's this larger sort of amorphous issue that they're battling against. The unseen enemy is the the thing that they're never going to win against. That's kind of why we don't see a huge amount. I mean, I've enjoyed the characters very much personally, but I think that's why some mm-hmm. people felt that the relationships weren't really explored a lot. And as we've said, there was no real romance in the book besides a sort of vaguely hinted at possibly one-sided a little bit there relationship bit strange yeah okay i i would love to know if you have opinions about this emma but i have a lot of opinions about this very (laughs) one specific thing and (laughs) oh yeah i mean i don't know how to feel i think is my opinion i because Mm. the focus of the book very much yeah is not romance the characters kind of feel like chess pieces that were like moving around around on a board to make these larger points. But at the same time, very strange to me that at the beginning of this story, we have this almost hinting at this one-sided relationship, these one-sided feelings, and then it never really goes anywhere. We never get anything really. Very strange. Mm. I kind of want to push back on the one-sided. Okay, yes. And this might be a little bit of a spoiler, actually. So this is a spoiler. If you want to avoid it, go a minute ahead in the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) At the beginning, it is said that one of the characters wants to place their hand gently on the other person because they look very good. Yes. 
the other character later in the book is being questioned about why they aren't going out with a one of the other characters. I'm being very vague specifically here, remember? And mm-hmm. that character who was the in the original scene, the one being touched, says, oh, I think you know why. I you forgot about why? that. I forgot about that. And no, no, no problem. It's, I mean, it's a thick book, right? <laughs> it's a yes. big ass book. <laughs> but this stuck out to me so hard because, oh, this is fantastic. Not only are we getting all of these other things, we're also possibly getting this moment of really making a family, right? Yes. Really making a connection. When it went nowhere, when it really didn't end up going someplace, I was a little disappointed. But I absolutely think in some ways it might have been necessary. Yes. If if this romance had become a thing inside of the book, I do worry that the story itself would have not been able to tell the other stories it was actively trying yeah. to tell. So yeah. that being said, there are some critiques of this book saying this was queer baiting. And I don't agree. I don't think so. However, if I had been that one character, I would have absolutely made multiple moves. <laughs> I just want everybody to know. <laughs> yeah. I don't agree with the queer baiting yeah. stuff because I don't think it's not important enough to the plot. It's yes. not. A, we, we just mm-hmm. talked about two instances, right? In which we were sort of seeing something maybe there. And that's pretty much the only two instances. <laughs> it's, it's not there right. in every single chapter. We see this almost not quite sort of there, maybe possibly. No, no. Right. It's like two or three times that you're kind of questioning, but it's not relevant enough to the mm-hmm. story to it's not as if she gains anything from not including it or including it, you know, I don't think it's important enough mm-hmm. to be queer baiting. And I think also there's just such a big difference between queer baiting and queer coding. And I feel like often the people who uh, levy yes. these critiques kind of forget that queer coding is also a thing that exists. Mm-hmm. For sure. That's a great point. Emma, you're going to start discourse. People are going to... <laughs> You are actively going to cause drama on book talk. Oh, I don't know. No. <laughs> the Ace of Books says it's okay to queer code characters and not no. give them a happy ending. Cancelled. Emma's into bury your gaze trope. I can't believe it. We would never let that happen. Pages Unknown stands firmly with Emma. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Did any characters in the book kind of irritate or grate on either of you? Obviously, there's one that grates on a lot of people that are reading this book, but... So many of them. So many of them. (laughs) I mean, mean, they're all so deeply entrenched in the academic space that they're in that I feel like they all have that Mm -hmm. sort of vague annoyingness that comes along with those spaces. Yes. We're all just like a little bit irritating. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. but I can't think of anyone specific. Maybe the professor. Everybody was grading to me. Absolutely every character made decisions that I felt maybe they were right in the moment. But oh my God, I found myself screaming at the book constantly (laughs) being what are you doing, dude? Like, it seems like you've got anxiety. I think you need to go take a fiver and come well, back. Yeah. I feel like it's hard to dislike them, though. That's it's They're mm-hmm. in such a strange, unique position. That you sort of have to give so mm-hmm. many allowances while reading the book because it's just so such a unique storyline, right? These characters have been mm-hmm. taken from the only place they ever knew. Most of them don't have family members that they can turn to. They deserve some breaks. You can be a bit of yes, a douchebag if absolutely. you want. Absolutely. They deserve some grace afforded to them. I really am excited to talk about the fact that there are footnotes in this book and they aren't silly, fluffy footnotes. <laughs> they are like, yes, absolutely. it makes it so unique. It's such a unique little factor of this book because I think there there are a couple of pages where half of the page is taken up by the footnote, which you really mm-hmm. only see in academic type texts. <laughs> like You don't mm-hmm. often see that in fiction. It's so cool. What did you guys think about that? I have so many thoughts about the footnotes. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> 
one thing I really like about them is I feel like they act as kind of a way to make the book feel more accessible. Anytime there's a language mm. that isn't English, we get a translation in a footnote, which is not something that had to be there at all. Right. And it felt like it, it felt very pointed. It felt like the author was saying, look, I'm going to make this text as accessible to you as possible because I don't want to become what I am critiquing in a way. No, absolutely. I thought it was fantastic. It was so much fun to go through each of the pages. And as, as you're talking, Michaela, just see them. Because whenever I see footnotes, I used to be a little afraid when I was in school. I'd be like, oh no, man, I got to go find six other books to understand what's going on on <laughs> mm-hmm. the page. And in this, I'm like, oh no, she's just going scorched earth. Yes. She's just calling out every person that she's like, no, actually, here's what really happened, which is what, which I think is what's funny. Emma, when we were talking a little bit rep, you were talking, are they, since they're written in a different voice from the main narrative, what do we think that RF Kuang wanted to try to tell us with this, right? Is this a future historian annotating this? A nameless, omniscient narrator, Kuang herself. When you brought this up, I didn't know what to think, Emma. So I'd love to hear <laughs> more thoughts. You said yeah. you had many, so I'd love to hear. <laughs> this is one of my other thoughts is I am so interested in how the narrative voice is different in these footnotes. Because like you were saying, she goes full scorched earth. It's a scathing indictment of imperialism mm-hmm. in academia of these particular characters. And so it's it's this very different voice from the rest of the narrative. And I'm so intrigued in that. And I'm wondering, yeah, is this supposed to be some kind of future historian who, based on events at the end of the book, is kind of writing about what had happened? Or does Kwong intend us to read it as her own commentary? I genuinely mm-hmm. don't know. I'm not sure. Or maybe it, maybe I'm overthinking this and it's just an omniscient narrator and it doesn't matter. I have no idea. It definitely matters. Everything in this book is so purposeful. <laughs> Every choice she True. makes is so... It, it has. There's a reason. And I, yeah. the last book that mm-hmm. I read that had footnotes in this sort of style is called The Brutish Museums. Dan Hicks, I think, is the name of the author. Something mm. similar to that, if I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I have been reading that book for nine months, ten months, because something I do is I see a footnote and I go look at the source and I try to understand because you have to question a little bit sometimes what someone else is saying. Right. They might be taking it out of context or whatever. These footnotes didn't feel like work to me. The Babel mm-hmm. footnotes feel like so much right. fun because it is yes. just the tea. <laughs> it's the drama. It's the moment <laughs> where it feels like RF Kwong got to be like, and fuck you too. You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> she bring it to you every ball. I don't know why you're gagging. <laughs> Like I, really serving the tea. I She's loved over it. it. <laughs> I love it. I thought it was fantastic. And it, it. I was worried when I first started seeing them crop up. I was like, uh-oh, is this going to take me out of the story? Because I'm going to look at the footnotes and be sort of removed. Nope. I was right there with her. I was like, I'm loving this. I was like almost just as excited <laughs> to read the footnotes as I was to read the actual storyline. Oh, it was amazing. The passages at the beginning of each chapter would occasionally throw me off because I thought that they were supposed to maybe have a really deep meaning. So as I read it each time, and then I read the chapter, and I'm like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how to feel about it. But the footnotes were so much fun. Emma, I'm so glad that you were willing to join us today on this very chaotic discussion of Babel and all of the things inside of its lovely, a uh, lovely story. We did not want to let you go without asking a series of questions. We have a little mini interview for you, and I hope we're not springing it on you here. But we have some questions we'd love to to ask you if you're up for it. Yes, absolutely. Some of these are would you rathers. 
some of these are maybe controversial questions. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna dive right in. Awesome. Emma, you have to choose one. And which one of these is it? Is it gonna be physical books, ebooks, or audiobooks? Which one would you choose to have for the rest of your life? That's all you can have. Which format? Which one and why? Defend your choice. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> This is painful. This is painful because I'm going to have to say physical book, even though I love audiobooks mm. dearly. I love reading audiobooks. I read them while I'm like walking to school every day. But mm -hmm. there is something so satisfying about book design specifically to me, mm. like the book as almost an art object that just having oh, yeah. a physical book and like having it open and seeing the layout of the pages and the cover, just absolutely incredible. Big fan. So I'll have to go with physical books. Woo! good choice. <laughs> I I think I agree with you. I think I think in principle I agree with you because having a physical like physical representation of the book makes it feel more real and I know that that's not maybe a popular opinion on it. I love ebooks and I think I'd probably end up choosing those not to push back on your physical book preference here, but I just think I could have so many more more books with me at one time. Yes, true. It's a lot lighter to carry a Kindle than like 10 mm -hmm. physical books. <laughs> yes, but you can't smell a Kindle and you can smell true. a book. True. True. Well, you can smell a Kindle. It just smells plastic. like, uh, you know, cheap plastic. <laughs> I need that dusty, inky, pagey smell. Get like a scratch and sniff cover. <laughs> if they made those, that's a million dollar idea right there. Hold on to that. TM. Uh, this is it. <laughs> she's trademarked. This is it. Emma's merch, actually. I think. Yeah, this is Emma's <laughs> next we go. merch, I think is what no we're doing. No one can take that idea now. Uh, copyright, copyright. <laughs> it's mine. <laughs> This idea of having many, many books on your Kindle brings me to the next question. What books are what books are on your to be read pile going into this winter? And do you have a plan for 2023? Do you make goals for reading? I'm a total mood reader. Most of what I pick up next depends on the whims of the reading gods and my moods of the moment. Mm. But I do have lots of books in my want to read on Goodreads. And if I mm -hmm. don't know what to read, I'll like go through and pick something out. And I have a few I'm very excited about. I'm right. very excited about The Stars Undying by Emery Robin because it's being pitched. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Yes, for the people listening at home, we all just started dancing. Yes. So it's being pitched as, quote, a spectacular space opera debut, perfect for readers of Anne Leckie's Ancillary Justice and Arcadi Martin's A Memory Called Empire, inspired by the lives and loves of Cleopatra and Julius Caesar, which is the best premise I have ever heard in my entire life. It's hitting all the notes. Yes. It's amazing. Oh, my God. Emma, I'm just going to ask right now. I think all three of us are going to read this. We're going to have you back yep. in February Absolutely. and we're just going to do this. Yes, I would love to. <laughs> well, what else is on your to yes. be read? You said you had a couple. I do. I also am. Where did it go? I want to have the actual title mm -hmm. in me. Hang on a second. Oh, no. It's okay. I lost it. Oh, there it is. Okay. I do. I also have The Dawn Hounds on my TBR. Mm. It's another like science fiction story and it's a debut. Oh, wow. Yeah. It sounds very interesting. It seems like it goes a little bit into the new weird genre. I mean, I haven't read it yet, obviously, so I'm not okay, sure, yes. but it seems like there's a little bit of that. So very excited about that one too. I love that people are talking about the new weird genre because I feel like a lot of books from my childhood would retroactively be able to be yes. fit into this category. Totally. <laughs> there were a lot of weird children's books that got written. Like I don't, some of them I look back and I don't understand. How did these get published for kids? Yeah, <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> 
That was very diplomatic, Emma. That was very <laughs> diplomatic. Uh, you can't be diplomatic on the next question. That's for sure. Uh-huh. We're looking for those hot takes, the spicy, spicy book talk takes that are going to make the people go, what? <laughs> what? Okay. I think this is my spiciest take. And it is uh-huh. that I cannot read a hardcover book with the dust jacket off. The dust jacket has to be on. That is not where I thought you were going. Oh, my God. No, well, I know. thank you for joining us today. <laughs> Goodbye. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you later. Um, you have to read it with it on? That's... Yes. That's so... I take that shit off so fast. It's like, shook, done. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I put it back on, obviously, before I, everyone starts freaking the fuck out. How? Why? <laughs> because... So book as like art object, right? I feel like I'm doing the illustrator of the cover a disservice. And oh. also the little flaps oh. on the inside are perfect bookmarks. Yes, that I agree with. If you lose your bookmark, you just flip it open. You're good. I do that too. It's, I still strip the book first though. That's so interesting. Mm. And also a really adorable reason that you want to give homage to the illustrator. That's very, very sweet. <laughs> I start to feel bad. I'm like, oh. No, absolutely. My, my partner and I do a similar thing. We stay for the credits in a movie. Yes. We always stay. To, we want to see the names. You know, somebody needs to be read. I will say just a weird thing. My mother used to take the dust jackets when I was younger. She took them and she would get them laminated. And then she would oh. cut them down. And so she would make it folded so that it would not be bad. My mom was, no, Zach, you have some very nice, beautiful books here. I understand your hot take here, Emma. Uh, I mean, I think you're incorrect. <laughs> However, I will just... <laughs> Do you have, that's your spiciest take, which I think is not all that spicy, but controversial. I have a real one. I have a real one, which, (laughs) which is that I think Divergent is actually a good book because people talk about how the world building is not good, that it like never would happen. And I'm like, yeah, that is very true. Mm -hmm. However, the point of the book is not to say, hey, here is a realistic way that the future might look. It's to say something to teenagers about how they feel like they're getting shuffled into these different life paths as they have to pick a major, as they have to decide where they're going to school. And so I think Divergent was so successful in part because it tapped into that feeling Mm. that a lot of teenagers have that they're getting stuffed into these boxes. And so I think for what it's trying to do, the world building is not bad. I love that. I love that tape. I think that's amazing. I feel the same way about The Host, actually. And I will argue that I think it's a a very good book. That's interesting. I I only read that book once. And I never revisited it and it didn't stick with me enough to make an impression. But the Divergent series I love. Mm -hmm. And that is such a succinct way of explaining why that book was important. Because you saying that Mm -hmm. just resonated deep inside where my my teenage self was like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That is a great take. Emma's the voice, the voice of a generation. (laughs) Well, I know we're talking a lot about books that already exist. We're recording this before November starts. November is National Novel Writing Month. I know that you've talked in the past on your account on TikTok, Ace of Books on TikTok. Everybody listening should go follow Emma immediately. Very lovely, cozy content. This person, I'm just telling y'all, after having nearly two hours of a conversation, this person is lovely. Go follow. Oh, thanks. (laughs) 
back to my actual question here. You've talked about NaNoWriMo previously. I want to know, as we go into that month, can you tell us about your experience in the past? Do you have anything planned? And are there any things, uh, maybe a book we should be looking out for someday from you? Oh, okay. There are many parts to this question. I am not sadly participating this year in NaNoWriMo because mm-hmm. graduate school is kind of taking all of my spare mental bandwidth, but I participated yeah. last year. I've done it, I don't know, four or five times over the years. Mm-hmm. And I have always had a wonderful experience. It is such a good way to push yourself to write a bunch of words. And I'm a huge perfectionist. And so for me, mm-hmm. just knowing that it's about quantity and not quality is so freeing. And I think oftentimes oh, yeah. what I write turns out better because I'm forcing myself just to push through. And so it is an absolute blast. Highly recommend trying it if you're on the fence. Hell yeah. Do it. Do it. Don't be scared. Yeah. It's fun. Is there a work in progress that you have put to the side during grad school? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's very far from being ready to, to query. It's been through like three drafts so far. It is a YA coming of age story about oh my gargoyles. Um, <laughs> so the, the elevator pitch in. is, yeah, so. Girl- <laughs> We're sold. <laughs> okay. So the elevator pitch is that girl in a small town meets a gargoyle and has to team up with him to defeat spooky threats that are coming after her family and also to solve the mystery of why these threats are coming after her family in the first place and what it Mm -hmm. is that's so strange about her family and like her sister. And so she's trying to protect them and also solve the mystery at the same time. And also gargoyles. also fighting monsters. Gargoyles. And also gargoyles. You had me at gargoyle. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds amazing. So it's gone through a couple of like drafts. So it sounds like this is moving kind of, it's moving along. It's moving. I had to definitely put it on hold when I started grad school this year, but I have a critique group and then I have some other people who I I kind of shove it at them and I'm like, okay, tell me how to fix this. And then they give me feedback and then I, and then I make it better. So, you know, it's getting there slowly. That makes me very excited to think that one day I could have a YA gargoyle centric book written by the lovely Emma on my bookshelf. That is very exciting to me. (laughs) One of these days. Thank you so much. I don't have the words properly to express how enjoyable this was. I really, you are such a delight Mm -hmm. to talk to. And we so appreciate you giving us your very limited free time. You have so much going on in your life. And so we really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us about Babel and about all the exciting things we can see in your corner. Do you want to give a quick rundown of your handles so people can find you? Yes. Yes. So I am the ace of books on TikTok. There's um, periods in between every word. So it's like the dot ace dot of dot books. And then (laughs) I'm also, you can find me on Goodreads also under the ace of books. And those are kind of the two main places that I'm active right now. I love it. I'm going to be finding you on Goodreads right after we're done recording this because I already know that that's going (laughs) to add some excitement to my Goodreads timeline. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. And thank you again, Emma, for joining us. This has been such an enjoyable episode episode of Pages Unknown. If you want to hear more from us, you can find us at all your normal spots for podcasts as well as on TikTok and on Instagram and Goodreads as Pages Unknown slash Pages Unknown pod for some of them. It's an iteration of one of those things. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. <laughs>